Madam Clark, you are virtually a household name within the UN system. You could even be described as the establishment candidate. I have never been an establishment candidate for anything. This is going to be more interesting than the Olympics. It is more interesting than the Olympics. An open competition for the most difficult job of the world. I have never said vote for me because I'm a woman. Vote for me because you think I'm the best candidate. It's up to every woman of influence to encourage women to believe in themselves. This is the N to Z of film. With Andy and Rajiv. Kira and welcome to episode 10, the final episode of this season of the Interzeta film, Wandawahine. This episode is a very special episode. We are talking My Year with Helen, directed by Gaylene Preston and Rajiv. I'm at Gaylene Preston's house right now with her. Hello. Well, there we go. We're having a cup of tea. (laughs) Hey, Rajiv, that would be very weird if you were at Gaylene's house without Gaylene. (laughs) That would be strange, yes. (laughs) Um, uh, yeah, so this is this is really exciting for me. So just just a, on a personal note, Gaylene is the wonderful mentor that got me into this this crazy industry. I, sh- I guess I should thank her. <laughs> Are you sure? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we, me and Andrew used to enter a competition back in high school, uh, making movies, and Gaylene was the judge, and she sort of she sort of mentored me um, a little bit over over the last few years. Um, so much so that Gaylene, I don't really remember, but you got me my first ever gig. And that was making coffees on the set of Jeff Murphy's Blur to Revisited. I don't even remember. There you are, you see. <laughs> that was my first gig. And then I worked on that doco as your production assistant on the Napier earthquake. Oh, yeah, that was good. That was a great one. And then you, you offered me work on Perfect Strangers and I turned it down like an idiot because I was doing a university degree. And it's, I, it's one of my biggest regrets. Cause that was a great film. University. <laughs> that, that, that's one of my favourite films. It was... It was it was ahead of its time. <laughs> it was. It's. It's really great. I mean, I, I wanted to go into your history, but that was one that I. Whenever I watch it, I go, "This is a good film." I really. I really get a lot out of it each time I watch it. It's something that I noticed with um, *My Year with Helen* as well. Upon um, this will be my third viewing. There's, there's little things that I pick up that I didn't notice in the past. But I sort of just wanted to go into your career a little bit. You. You were there at the beginning of of the renaissance of the New Zealand film industry. Yeah, right? I was. The thing about the beginning of things, like you know the Russian Revolution, the French Revolution, is you do often find plenty of women at the beginning of things. And then what happens is as money comes into the catchment area and and, uh, the the, the whole thing starts to become a business, you know, and and then an industry, Mm. women tend to become the handmaidens and... Mm. And the men tend to become the creatives, right? <laughs> and and I think the New Zealand they elbow their way yeah, in. Yeah, and well, I don't know if they've elbowed their way in, but they just have a greater sense of entitlement than the women do. Um, and you can see our babies on our CVs when you're a female, um, right. and you can't see the babies of. Uh, a male on his CV. Right. It's right. generally pretty unusual. So, <laughs> yes. so you know, there's lots of factors that come into it. It's not one thing, but, but yes, I was there at the beginning. Oh, that's interesting. So, uh, I, like, I always think of like the Hollywood system and how back in the day, like, all the editors were women, and it was like a, it was like an editorial because it was it was seen as sewing. But it's less so now, and I wonder if that's sort of a similar thing. Like, 
were there roles assigned to women back in the day that are no longer assigned to women? Well, you know, uh, an editing job does work well with running a family. Right. Um, although some editors might actually disagree with that. <laughs> you know, I mean, in a way, the film, working in the film industry and having a family are two mutually exclusive things. Yes. So making yeah. that work is incredibly difficult, male or female. Mm-hmm. So we, we have a high divorce rate worldwide. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, like, it's, like, it's like filmmakers, police. Like, like... Uh, yeah, probably, yeah. <laughs> So when you say you were there at the beginning, like you were, you were there with like I always think of the classic sort of Jeff Jeffs and Rogers and all that. Were you part of that crowd, or did you? How did you get into that? Well, I was in uh, in the UK. Uh, so I I went to art school in Christchurch, and then I left and went to the UK and lived in in Britain for seven years, during which time I became involved with the women's liberation movement so i was an art therapist i made my first film in a psychiatric hospital in cambridge and so i was i was always through the uk years pursuing creative things like cartooning and all the rest and filmmaking Mm. um, but not professionally i was earning my living by being um, an art and drama therapy uh, worker and then I heard about this thing that was going on in New Zealand <laughs> and it was Blurter and it was, I saw the water film that the film unit made and I thought, you know, I could stay here in Britain and I could chip away at the edifice and gradually get a union card mm, mm, mm. or I could just go back home and see what's cooking mm, mm. and what was cooking was really exciting. Mm. It's interesting you mentioned that that British school. I've, I've recently spent a weekend with Peter Roberts, the editor of The Dark Horse, and he's a British guy. Yeah. And he talked about like the, the system in Britain, even for like the arts, is highly regimented. And he would have, he loved coming to New Zealand because he would have had to spend like seven years in a, as an apprentice before he could like actually get into the actual mechanics of making a movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody in the London Film Group that I knew was trying to get a union card <laughs> so they could even begin working in a film industry. So chipping away at the edifice was something I avoided by coming back here. Um, it's true, the, you know, I mean, I, I, my first job was at Pacific Films and I was the only woman on the shooting crew hmm. at that point and they did, they called me Bruce. <laughs> I mean, in the credits or just generally? <laughs> no, 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 not in the credits. <laughs> just generally? No, just, hey, Bruce. Hey, Bruce. <laughs> well, that meant that I was one of the gang and I appreciated <laughs> it. I, you know, I didn't want to be some wussy, sissy thing on the side. But, but, but that was their way of including me. And I must say that because I had a very clear feminist ideology, I would be the only woman in the room sometimes at film commission meetings. Mm-hmm. And because I had that feminist ideology, I, I could understand. I had a, I had a way of analysing what was going on around me that wasn't uh, personal. Right. It was systemic, if you see what I mean. So that didn't mean that I didn't get, I didn't feel isolated, mm. or it didn't mean that I, that I didn't get upset when something's happened, but I had a way of coming to terms with it that made me perhaps a little bit more resilient mm. Mm. than other women who did not have that 
yeah, perspective. I mean, I mean, that's that's like number one filmmaking is doggedness. Like you don't get anywhere. Like I've seen all my colleagues drop out of the industry. Like you have to have a persistence about you, and you 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 obviously had that because you you had a, you had a career as a as a creative as yes. opposed to. I, I actually think what has worked for me isn't. Uh, yes, I am persistent, but <clears throat> I'm persistent because I have a purpose. So my, I, I've I've had a clear kaupapa. For my filmmaking, it was why I came back, and why I chose to stay here. And it's been about my work ever since, really. Mm. And it actually relates back to the first film I made in the psychiatric hospital. So my reason for making films isn't. It took me a while to understand that everybody has different reasons mm, mm. for making films. Yes, and I think why Māori filmmakers are so resilient is that they too have a clear kaupapa. Mm, yeah. so, so if you have a purpose, it'll see you around the block. If you, if you just have a dream and goals, you know, a, a, a dream, I have a dream, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, my film's going to screen at Sundance I'm, and I'm going to have made my first feature by the time I'm 30, that kind of goal, uh, it leads to feelings of uh, failure. Yes. So, yeah. so it's very hard to hit goals, uh, particularly in an independent film industry, and particularly in one that's on the edge of the world. Yes. Because we have, we have more than one disability when it comes to our films in the international arena. Um, the Pākehā films are European films, and they're not that different from Australian or American or whatever films. Right, yes. Uh, so the American distributors will prefer American ones mm -hmm. because the Pākehā films aren't sufficiently different. Right, right. You know, we still have had only one dramatic feature made by a Māori woman at this point in our 40 years of celebrating the New Zealand Film Commission, and that it's is nasty. a terrible statistic. Isn't it and, and it has been, no, it wasn't Nati. Oh, was Modi. Modi. Meritamita made Modi in yeah. 1989, and since then, I mean, I'm, I, I think Waru is a wonderful film, but it is actually a whole lot of short films short. put together brilliantly mm, mm, to mm. make one film, yeah. but let's not have that brilliance cloud the terrible statistic. Yes, <laughs> it, it, it is. I mean, we, me and Andrew had a discussion about actually calling this season Wonder Wahine, which you know was a little bit. I was we're a little bit worried about that because we're not really talking to many Maori about many Maori women filmmakers. So. Well, you know, I think that we can't just blame the Film Commission for that. We, mm. uh, you know, we have to do a full analysis of what global distribution is for our films because you know. I think the distribution of films has shaped an entire audience. Mm. Um, and from the time that I've been making films, say from, let's say, 1978, I made my first independent documentary with Walker Atwell. Mm. From 78 to now is 40 years. And all I've seen is the global distribution industry getting more and more narrow in terms of what is called mainstream. Mainstream cinema. Mm. So, for example, my first feature, Mr Wrong, when that went out into the global distribution industry, there were 250-plus small independent distributors in just the United States. So that means 
we've got a film to sell and we've got 250 prospective buyers. Right. So our chances of selling it are better than it would be now where actually you can win major prizes at major festivals and not have a single buyer. Right. A- and and uh, that's because maybe there's 10 independent distributors in the USA now. Mm. So the companies have got more and more corporatized. Yes. And, yeah. and that has shaped the film watching audience, as well. yeah. which has got more and more mainstreamed. Yes. And w- but what is mainstream has become more and more narrowly defined. <laughs> so that's my analysis from somebody who's had a, a ringside seat on how global distribution attitudes, particularly to the foreign uh, and to women's work, that's my analysis. Right. Yeah. Now, coming back, if we come back to New Zealand in that regard, have you seen like the actual cr- creative side change, or has it stayed the same as far as like the representation of women? I mean, as far as like movies getting released in cinemas, it's still pretty dire. But uh, I've, I've worked in the industry, and I see plenty of women working in the industry, but they're not necessarily getting films in the cinemas. My friend Deb Verhoeven is an. Uh, she's a Melbourne, well, actually, she's Sydney now, um, academic who actually concentrates on data, mm. and she and her. Uh, 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 She's worked in partnership with another woman whose name I forget because I don't know it, but they they have just published the results. They took an approach to big data. So they got three years' worth of film distribution globally mm-hmm. and they looked at films that... Uh, they looked at feature films that had screened in more than 30 days in a cinema, actually 20 days. Yeah in a cinema outside their home territory, mm-hmm. um, and they looked at, at the gender balance there globally for distribution of feature films. And guess what the statistic was for women's no, films in guess. cinemas? Guess what it was? <laughs> I don't know. I really I'd be less than 20. 2%. Oh, 2%. <laughs> Ouch. So what that means is, you know, that, that we can look at... You know, we want parity of female directors directing high-end drama television. Uh, We want the studios to be choosing more than one or two women to direct a film every year. But, I mean, in the end, most women's work is independent work. Yeah. Uh, Most most of the, the work that is done by women directors. And, I mean, it's interesting to look at women directors because that is the statistic that shows you where the problem lies because it is the director who controls the frame Mm. to a larger or lesser degree and certainly to a large degree if that is an independent Mm. film. Um, So the the films are being made. A lot of them are European, um, but the women's work is not being seen. No, no. So we, and and why is that? You have to ask yourself, why has that happened? Um, and, it, and it has to be said, it, it's happened because the audience gets used to what it's given. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And if you have basically sexist, a, a sexist male view uh, looking at your film, 
I mean, I remember going to Toronto with Ruby and Rata, mm-hmm. 1991. Now, at the Toronto Film Festival that year, Ruby and Rata was in the top ten. They didn't have a top audience award. Uh, they they screened the ten top films from the audience vote. Mm-hmm. They screened them in a fortnight after the festival. Cool. Right? Um, and Ruby and Rata was in that bunch. And I was really keen. I mean, my dream was at that point to have Ruben Rata picked up by Miramax. Yeah, yeah. That would have been just fabulous. I organised a meeting with Miramax. They turned up, there were three guys and one woman. They were all wearing black. Uh, The men had sort of spiky hair and Italian suits and they had big badges on that that were round um, with big white writing on that said, eat, fuck, kill. Wow. <laughs> you know, and I just looked and I thought, Jesus they're a, they're a gang, you know, yeah. and the one woman was part of the gang because she was their Bruce. <laughs> right. You know, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. if, if you're the only woman, then you don't want to be a complete outsider on the inside. There's yeah, not much yeah, point. Yeah. You well, don't you can't have any do influence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So women do have to become part of gangs in these situations. Mm. Um, male gangs, I mean. And I just looked at them and I thought, why am I pitching this film? And they're not going to pick it up. Yeah, it isn't yeah. what they're doing. <laughs> Does that answer your question? Oh, yeah. New Zealand film? Oh, New Zealand film. <laughs> We have, from the beginning, fought our way into cinemas. Mm. That's male made for all New Zealand films. All New Zealand films. Ha- with a very few exceptions, have to fight their way into New Zealand cinemas. They have to fight their way into Australian cinemas. Mm. You know, we've done that with various degrees of success. Yeah. And I think that now, look at the creativity in the New Zealand film industry, and a lot of it is female. Yeah. There's an there's a there's a tide coming, which I think Waru signals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a tide coming of young women. Like, I, w- I was uh, privileged to choose the six of the best last year last for the year, International though. Film Festival. Um, I haven't seen this year's bunch, but the short films are extraordinary. I couldn't choose... I, uh, choosing six was incredibly difficult. Yeah, like last year's films, uh, the, full, the first time where I was like, oh, every one of these is great. Usually I'm like, oh, why do they fund that? No, 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 no. And there were and there were films there that weren't chosen that have done very well Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. subsequently. Um, and they've had the same problem this year, and I think they'll be screening six of the best, which is Leon Nabi's selection, but they'll also be screening another seven. Oh, good, oh, good. Because and, and the standard's so high. Now, that that actually signals... See, I think the 48-hour film festivals had something to do with that. Mm. Mm. Uh, because the thing about the 48-hour is there's no barrier. Right. Now, that puzzled me 10, 15 years ago because though there's no barrier, we were still seeing very few women directors emerge in that competition. Right, right. So I started to watch carefully what was going on. And what was going on was, this is my analysis, um, was that the teams turn up and everybody's kind of lumpy. Yeah, we're going to make a film. <laughs> and nobody knows what they're going to do. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And by the end of the weekend, the women have got the clipboards, they're delivering the films, they've, they've made spreadsheets. They're producing. <laughs> uh, yeah. And their boyfriends 
who, I mean, the women have helped with the writing or they've written it even, mm. but they don't take the credits. And they might have even directed the actors on the floor. But by the time it's edited and they're in the door with their 48-hour films, somehow they are the producer and their boyfriends are the director. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, and I think that's partly an attitude that, you know, women aren't confident. Mm -hmm. You know, women, I think we spend a lot of our lives being good girls. <laughs> Seriously, I do. <laughs> yeah, well, I agree. You know, if there's anything I regret in terms of my filmmaking life, it's because I was too much of a good girl, probably. Not enough, not enough. Hey, get out of there. <laughs> let me, yeah, let me yeah. step in. Um, yeah, I think I think that's the same as, a, as, as, as all barriers to entry. Like, like it... If you if you if you walk into a room of filmmakers, you go to a conference, and it's all dudes, or all white dudes, even, you know, that's a barrier. Like that's a barrier straight up. You're like, oh, do I even belong in this space? Like, yes. is this space for me? Well, I knew from the beginning I didn't belong. I went to nineteen in nineteen eighty three. I went to the Cannes Film Festival. I was Lindsay Shelton's assistant, and. Uh, I was there. I had been making a documentary about the making of Utu, mm. Chief Murphy's brilliant film. Yeah, yeah. And it was screening in, in certain regard in Cannes. So I was there because I wanted to see the whole thing through, mm. even though the documentary was delivered and had screened on television already. Anyway, I went there and I thought, gosh... And I started to think about how that whole thing works because at Cannes you've got the whole market there. You see the international film industry. It's a snapshot once a year. And I thought, actually, Filmland is a terribly tiny village. Right. It's a village with a population of roughly 2,000 people. Filmland, population 2,000, <laughs> give or take. Uh, most of it middle-aged white men in 1983. Um, because if you look at how many films are actually in production, in promotion, shooting or in pre-production or final financing, you can pretty well say that there's 2,000 people globally every year responsible for that production. Right. So there's a lot more other people around it but actually, in terms of active producing films happening, 2,000 people are responsible. At a time. And, and I think that that figure is probably about the same, But so that at a time. So yeah, yeah, yeah. every year it might be a slightly different 2,000 people, and there would be some people who are, you know, who've got a castle on the hill in Filmland, mm -hmm. and other people who come and go from the... From the the pods, <laughs> but 2,000 people are deciding what we globally watch on screens. And I don't actually, I haven't done any thought about how that's changed, right. but I suspect it's not that different because there's now very serious gatekeepers. Right. See? That's, I mean, gatekeeping is a real problem. You know, <laughs> if, I, if I thought, uh, okay, let's draw film land and how it was as a place in 1983 and, and how it's become, I think you'd see it, that it's changed a bit like Queens, uh, Queenstown. <laughs> that, uh, a bit like that, Queenstown? You know, yeah, that in 1983, <laughs> Queenstown would have, would have had a lot of low-rise houses. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. You, you know, now it's got the big 
It's a, a somewhat depressing thought, Gailene. Um, I think you have to be realistic. And, you know, and I think for our film industry, if you look at... See, I've got another thing. Like, the government money that has gone into the, um, the subsidy. Now, I know that the subsidy... You know, we have... Let's talk about the beginning. I came in at the beginning when New Zealand independent filmmakers were having to to be independent filmmakers. Yes. Because if you wanted to make a thing, yep. TVNZ was the only network and TVNZ had gone in-house, yep. courtesy of the Kirk government. So the Kirk government really resourced TVNZ and so... TVNZ hired a lot of people in-house. Yeah. They closed the door to independent production. I arrived at Pacific Films just at the point where Pacific was losing its access to screens in New Zealand because mm -hmm. they couldn't get the, John O'Shea couldn't get the commissions that had made Tangata Whenua yeah, and yeah, Hunting yeah. Horns and all those great documentaries mm. for TVNZ. So the gate came down with a thudding clang and with, uh, and with real uh, uh, pressure from John O'Shea, Bill Sheet, um, Alan Hyatt joined in. We got a New Zealand Film Commission and we had to have a New Zealand Film Commission and we had to put our films, independent industry had to be a film industry. Right. So... The outcome of that was that pretty quickly the independents realised that togging up with really good gear and exploiting the, uh, the, the landscape right. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and using the, the skills that were growing fast in the New Zealand film industry meant that a big industry grew quite quickly, which was uh, an industry that ser a service industry. And that service industry now gets a big uh, boost from the New Zealand government of about $600 million last right. year. The subsidies, the tax incentives. Now, what I don't understand economically, and I'd love to have a really good discussion <laughs> with, with somebody who does understand economics, $600 million would make, you know, say you said, right, we'll put that money into New Zealand filmmaking but we'll put it into independent filmmaking, yeah. <laughs> not servicing money. We'll put it into, and we will make, you know, 120 <laughs> right. New Zealand films. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the talent can do it. It's, it's a highly talented creative industry. This is the you same. Think if, we, if we flooded the market <laughs> with New Zealand movies that were whiz-bang and wonderful, even over three years, if you had 120 New Zealand films, both in New Zealand cinemas and around the world, we could really make a difference. We would have a, we would have an industry. What you're talking about is having a film industry, which we don't actually have. People people think we have a film industry. It's very small. And a film. <laughs> that's right. The New Zealand film industry is very small. Yeah. The 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 um the good thing about a New Zealand film is it has terrific flow on to every community that it goes anywhere near. Sure, yeah. The thing about a film industry, like, we went down to Punakaiki 
and we shot Perfect Strangers. We shot it at the wintertime because I knew that, you know, being a West Coaster, I knew that the weather is more settled in the winter on the coast. And you get these brilliant pastel days because the sun never quite rises, so you get Mm. a pink sky for a long time and a pounding sea. And so I went there in the winter and we spent one and a half million dollars in that place right. over eight weeks. Now, you know, some of that would have been crew wages, I suppose. Maybe we spent two million. But anyway, that crew went down the pub. They spent their money. They, we paid for accommodation. We paid for cars. We, we even paid a guy who'd never had a job before in his life to sit at the top of our location and make sure everybody was wearing a safety vest you know (laughs) his name was hippie and he's never stopped working ever since so you know i mean you it's unquantifiable the value of a local film industry that goes everywhere and tells all sorts of stories i have huge admiration for what peter and fran have done it's it's an amazing thing. It cannot be underestimated. It's hugely valuable to the country as a whole. But I think we have been forgetting that that bringing on middle ground filmmakers. So I work in the middle. I work at the top. I actually work at the top of the bottom. You work at the top Rashid. of the New Zealand film industry, which is small. You're at the top of that. I, 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 I work at the top of the bottom. <laughs> right. Uh, so the most I've ever had for a feature film was five million. Which is very budget level. For New and those <laughs> th- th- those films, that le- that budget level is so hard to sell internationally. That is the hardest. Right. Yeah. That's the hardest level to be trying to sell a film internationally. Yeah, yeah. So yes, I can get a reasonable box office for my films here in New Zealand. Praise the Lord, I'm touching the table and my head, touch wood. But, uh, you know, and that has allowed me to stay standing as a filmmaker. But it is an art business. Yes. And we do tend to discuss the art of it and the business of it in separate forums. Mm. And because I'm a producer-director and because I've been around such a long time and because I'm by definition an outsider... Like Ian Mune said, oh, you've got a club foot. As a filmmaker, you've got a club foot. And I went, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. You know, it's kind of like I'm, I'm off to the edge because I can, my, my sensibility because of who I am, hmm. which is partly to do with being a woman, partly to do with being a mother, partly to, to, to do with being a Kiwi, hmm. and partly to do with being bullshit and, and, you know, opinionated. Whoever it is that Galen Preston is puts me on the edge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I've been on the edge for a long time, and I've had a ringside seat to to view the kind of things that go on because I've never been a full-on participant. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I say I've had a ringside seat, I really have. Yeah, you really have. Um, Andrew, sorry, we sort of. did you have any questions for Galen? Because this seems like a good point to go into... Um, my you with Helen, but did you have anything else you wanted? Yeah, no, I mean it's it's I it's fine because I'm the rando on the other end of the <laughs> non-video Skype call. Have you got uh, any? Have you got any uh, questions though, Andrew? 
from that rave? <laughs> um, well, I actually thought the um, what you just said sort of was actually a very good seg into my year with yeah. Helen. Yeah. Because it reminded me of her, I think was it the first interview uh, she had for the job of Secretary General where she basically said she's never been the establishment candidate candidate, candidate for any It's a crazy question to ask. <laughs> you are a household um, name in the UN. <laughs> yeah. I have never yeah, been. So I was wondering, because you obviously didn't know that she was going to put herself forward for the Secretary General position, there's obviously some sort of kinship that you have with her in terms of being somewhat outsiders in your industry and still bloody well getting on with it yeah actually it's so I, I was wondering like what made you want to go and follow her for a year in the first place <laughs> well i probably need a brain surgery because it was really really hard <laughs> and that's why that's why there haven't been films made behind the scenes at the un because it's nearly too hard and it would take a a, a middle-aged motorbike jacket wearing hat wearing independent woman with a camera to kind of manage to squeeze through. I don't think, you know, if we turned up with a big time crew with BBC written all over us, we wouldn't have got far. But uh, Ree, Helen and I, um, I made, in 1992, I made a four part television series based on Sonia Davies' autobiography. Mm-hmm. And Sonia Davies was uh, a woman who I got to know very early on when I came back to New Zealand in 1977. Sonia was a peace campaigner, and at the time I met her, she was working for the Shop Employees Union and th- very much involved with the Working Women's Charter, and so was I. And I made Bread and Roses, uh, which Robin Lang and I produced, and Graham Tetley wrote mm. uh, adaptation from Sonia's autobiography, and so the, so I knew Sonia very well, and Helen was mentored by Sonia. Mm. Uh, Sonia, it, it's it's kind of interesting how it goes. No Sonia, no Helen, no Helen, no Jacinda. Right. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, right. It, it's, it doesn't just happen. These things. No. <laughs> And so, th- so I knew Helen, and uh, I didn't know her well, uh, but I knew her like a lot of people know her. But Helen knows lots of people, <laughs> um, and I think we always have recognised our singularity. So I was feeling very depressed about the world. I'd made hope and wire that that's another th- another thing I'm very proud of. Mm-hmm. That when it came out, it it um, upset the people in Christchurch. For all sorts of reasons, I'm hoping when they have a 10-year anniversary, they can look at it again um, and find some way to treasure it. But I, th- I think um, it's great. you <laughs> know, people go not in my Christchurch, which is true. You know, because Christchurch is a fragmented city. So I think I swallowed quite a lot of liquefaction dust and got a lung problem, which will always make you a bit depressed. And mm-hmm. I was feeling very bad about the situation in the world and I and I thought hang on a minute Helen has renewed her contract at the UNDP the U- United Nations Development um, Program and that's a four-year contract and she wouldn't have renewed that if she didn't think she was getting somewhere so I'm gonna I'm gonna see if I can follow her uh, with a camera 
um, and find out what's making her so chirpy. <laughs> so I rang, I rang her up and said, Helen, I'd like to... I'd like to follow you, make a film about the work you're doing. And she said, oh, yes. Um, And I said, I'll send you an email. And she said, oh, yes. And so I sent her an email, big, long thing, talking about creative control and what, you know, what it was going to mean in terms of access and all the rest. And I heard nothing. (laughs) I heard nothing for a couple of weeks. And I thought, oh, I just... So then I Facebook messaged her and said, I sent you an email. And I got an immediate reply that said, got it. <laughs> got it. Yeah, like, oh, okay, so I waited it. another week. I thought, oh, she's thinking about it. <laughs> you know, she's, she's giving this full consideration. And a week later, I, I sent her another one saying, so how's it going with the, the, know, email. the idea? <laughs> and I got an emoji of a, of a woman on a motorbike with pink hair and a thumbs up and and when she said yes originally she meant yes oh I see see and when she got the email she was going yeah I got it (laughs) and I reread my email and it didn't need a reply it actually didn't need a reply. And Helen had been busy. She'd read it and gone, oh, yeah, that's fine, and carried on. And then I said, did you get my email? And she said, got it. That's great. So that was my first learning around Helen. I mean, her communication is very direct and incredibly uh, efficient. Is she, you see it in the doco. Like, she's really, like... She's dealing with a lot. And yeah, she's, yeah. That's how she's doing it. She's efficient. She's just like, yep, that's that's what I want, you know. Yep. And she's thoughtful. Like, there's a few moments you ask a question, she thinks about it, and then she gives an answer, and that answer is it. Yes. <laughs> you know, like, yes. You know, that's that's all there is. Yeah. Like that's that's the answer that was to be <laughs> yeah, given. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's nothing else to be said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and and I mean, I think what is extraordinary to me about my year with Helen is what has happened since, because here's a film that clearly outlines. Helen Clark, for the first time in her working life, not succeeding. Right, yes. I mean, Helen has always broken through the metaphorical glass ceilings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she's done it since she was a whippersnapper. Mm. She's just forged on through. And this was her hitting her head quite strongly. She will refer to the glass ceiling... Um, at the top of the UN as a steel ceiling. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't set out to make a film that rendered a metaphorical thing visible. Right. But because you also see what's happening to all the other women candidates who with monotonous regularity are hitting uh, the same obstacle and going straight to the bottom of the pile, Um, Helen was the persistent one, and because she was persistent, that encouraged the other women not to just leave the race, which wasn't really a race. It was just a big kind of stunt. It was a a, a stunt. It was a bit of bullshit, really. And we filmed the stunt. (laughs) Now, I would have thought that Helen might have felt a bit equivocal about the film, because it was revealing her not succeeding. Mm. But in fact, Helen has embraced that film and it has 
I mean, she's probably screening, she's probably fronting with that film somewhere in the world right now. Yeah, I, I saw her. I was helping you guys out a little bit when I was at the film commission. And, and it's it, it's got legs, and she's really, and it, I think she's using it as a document to show well, this is what it's like. You know? She is. She's <laughs> pointing it out. And she's pointing it out in some very, to some very well-heeled audiences. Mm. So the audiences that that film is screening to is not a general audience globally. It's a very niche right. um Highly influential audience. I yeah, mean, we just we just screened it at the uh, Flying Broom Women's Film Festival in Turkey, mm. and after one of the screenings, the former foreign minister of Turkey he came up to me and congratulated me on the film. So, mm. it's screening to politicians, it's screening to diplomats, it's screening to uh, uh, corporate leaders, and it's kind of it fits with the co-papa mm. that I have. As a filmmaker. Right. So here's another thing. This film now, you know, having screened a New Zealand International Film Festival and then done a, a decent release here mm. in the cinemas, and then having screened in nine Australian Six festivals, festivals right? yeah, uh, in Adelaide in competition, opening night um, in Canberra, it actually screened... Canberra has two opening nights and they screened it twice. Oh, wow. Once for the politicians and once for the crowd. Right, right, the politicians. Um, so that film has done well, but not internationally. Right. So we haven't been able to get anyone to pick it up hmm. internationally. So I've had to think about that. I've had to think about that and go, well, you know, this film is an important film about gender problems at the top. And while that's not a new discussion, in my year with Helen, it's rendered pretty clear, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> um, so once more, that's so sadly, my year with Helen is in the 98% of mm, films right. made by women that are not getting picked up. Picked up. It seems, it seems, it seems crazy. <laughs> so again, I have a systemic analysis. You have a lot of these, Gabby. <laughs> yeah, you, ha you, you know, I do. Yeah, I do. It contributes to resilience. Mm, mm. You, you need to know your own business. Yeah. yeah. You can't just kind of go, oh, I feel bad. Oh, it's so hot. You know, <laughs> they did this to me. But that's what filmmaking this is. This is what isn't they it? want. <laughs> they wanted it, so I did it. You go, well, that's silly. <laughs> so, you know, I think there's a lot of, you know, we need to pull ourselves together as creatives and it's actually. Fight our pants. It's difficult though, because you know everyone I've talked to, we're creative, so we do we do spend a lot of time going, "What is wrong with me?" <laughs> what well, that, well wrong? that's that. I think that is creative. No, it's not. You're right. It, it isn't. It's not. It's not it's useful. It's so not useful. totally is not. <laughs> I don't. I don't think Picasso sat around going, "What was wrong with him?" And if he did, he made a rick, big angry Bob Dylan. <laughs> Bob Dylan gets turned down uh, from a hotel room. Joan Baez has to talk him in. He gets so angry that when he gets into the hotel room, he, he whips out his little typewriter. What does he do? <laughs> he writes the hour that the ship comes in. Nice. <laughs> and they'll raise their hands and they'll meet all our demands and we'll shout from the bows, your days are numbered and like Pharaoh's tribe, you'll be bound in the tide and like Elias, you'll be conquered. <laughs> That's what Bob Dylan did when the front desk wouldn't give him 
a hotel room. This is so great. I didn't expect Gailey and Preston to quote Bob Dylan on the podcast. Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, this. I mean, it's it's good to have a, a unified voice like that. I, I mean, getting to the specifics of the movie, something that was, you know, I watching it as as a, as a viewer, I was like frustrated. I thought, how how would have Gay Lean have felt in this moment where that first straw vote comes in and it's and it's Antonio, you know, as Guterres, and then the second straw vote comes in as Guterres, and then the fourth and the fifth, and you're just like, you know, what is this? You know, it, there was this this great talk of transparency, and I'm like, it doesn't feel transparent. <laughs> it's not transparent. <laughs> it's totally okay. Yeah. There's a moment in that film, and it's right up the front. When we talk to Ligatoft, mm. who was the uh, he was the Danish um, president of the General Assembly, that's a job that rotates every year. Yep. So the General Assembly has ninety three countries in it. The Security Council has fifteen, five of which are permanent members. So they're part of the hundred and ninety three. Ligatoft did an interview with us. He was very available to us for uh, interviews. And in the first interview, he says, and this is in the film, it could be that the successful candidate comes from that part of humanity who are not quite there yet, the female part. Uh, yeah, yeah. Now, I yeah. had a chance, of course, to review that several times. And I thought, that he's got very good English. That is a long way for him to go to not say the word woman. <laughs> so that was a clear clue from the beginning. Right, right. You know, so, so actually, I, you know, I, I wasn't so frustrated once they were having the straw polls, funnily enough, because uh, it was clear that we couldn't get in on them mm. because nobody could. Nobody could. <laughs> so at that point, we'd been around the press corps because we were always called media and made to be with them. So we'd sort of, again, been the outsider on the tri the insider tribe, which is a position for reasons you'll now know that I'm used to. Yes. <laughs> And so finding finding um, Matthew, the the motormouth racing commentator. Oh yeah. You know, right. and they're on their journey <laughs> yeah. and blah, blah, blah. Well, Matthew among the press corps was an outsider too. And he he was not popular with some of the others in, oh, right. in that tribe. Because I think I think what you what you see in My Year with Helen is it's an ethnographic film, essentially, and it's three tribes that come to the waterhole in that beautiful building in New York. I mean, that is a stunning building. It it's is a piece favorite. of public architecture. It's extraordinary. Anyway, that's the waterhole. The tribes come. You have the diplomats and politicians oh, yes. yeah. who are busy not wanting to tell the press what they're up to. Anything. Anything at all, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and especially want to avoid the lobbyists. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then you've got the civil society crowd who are the lobbyists who who are desperate to get through to the politicians. They're desperate to talk to anyone. anyone. Yeah, yeah. The press aren't that keen on talking to them either. Right. So they were happy to talk to us. So, you know, we fell in with the woman for Secretary General team very early. Yeah, they were great. Because, yeah. you know, when people won't talk to you, what are you going to film? So you film who will. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was very lucky with that film because I found Jean Krasno really early. And she's one of those people 
who is the same whether she's on camera or not. Great. They are very rare. People like that are very rare. Jacinda's one. They're rare. And then we had Matthew in the preschool. And we had Helen, access to Helen, but not the New Zealand team. Right. Um, because the, the then Minister of Foreign Affairs was not keen on my film. Oh. Or, or me particularly, <laughs> um, I, 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 I gathered. Uh, but Helen was very staunch in terms of the access she offered. Yes, yeah, great. So, so I knew that I could always get a, a good, seriously honest interview from Helen. So I don't cut around all the interviews. So if we're talking to Helen in January... That's the what she said in January. Right. You won't find comment from that interview Mixed towards in. the end of the film. I see. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. kind of like, this is what Helen said in January, so this is what she said in April. Mm. This is yeah. So each interview is kind of hermetically sealed in its time zone. Mm. And I think that's how you get the the, the character arc. Because it's it's an ethnographic character based documentary, My Year with Helen. Right. So you have the tribes, the three main tribes, um, and we can watch them behaving towards one another and among themselves. And you have uh, you have this event, which is the UN turning itself inside out, trying to be transparent but not. <laughs> but not. <laughs> um, and the revealing of the glass ceiling and all of that in terms of the situation they're in. Uh, and then you have... Three or four main characters. So you have Jean Krasno for one tribe, and you have uh, Matthew for the other tribe, and you have Helen. So you, so you got the three main characters there. So I was pretty lucky to find that. Yeah. So for me, people say, "Oh, how did you manage when the story changed?" Well, I wasn't there following a story. You're following Helen, right? I, I was following three tribes. Yeah, yeah. Actually. And so how, how early on, going back to what Andrew asked, did, did, did you find out about Helen running for Secretary-General? Well, we, we used a, a scheme that the Film Commission has that I would e- recommend to any aspiring filmmaker, and it's particularly good for documentary, where you can use a thing called Premier Pathways, yeah. um, where you can go and test a concept. So... Using Premier Pathways funding, I was able to mount a crew to go to um, on a country visit to Botswana with Helen. So we did that in July uh, 2015. And it was during that time in Botswana with Helen that I realised that this thing about Secretary-General was coming up and that Helen was busy back in New Zealand saying she would neither confirm nor deny that she was going to do it. (laughs) So then I knew that there was something really interesting coming up that next year. So I based the documentary around that because I knew that that was an idea that could be be funded. Mm. So we didn't get our funding till the following February, March. And that's when we raised, we'd had, we, we had managed to raise the money with private investment and um, television broadcast and distributor, all the things you have to have to make a feature. 
whether it's a documentary or a drama. Yeah, we yeah, yeah. managed that by February and we hit the deck running. Um, Helen actually declared in April, I think. Right. Okay, so it all quite, sort of worked yeah. out serendipitously. Yeah. So we would just go to New York, we being Catherine Madigan and I. So that film was made by two women. Hmm. Um, Catherine Madigan was my co-producer and alongside me, and she was the one who had to sit in taxis in New York with me after shooting a 10-hour day and coming home with nothing, would sit in this cab going, what was wrong with me? Why did I think of doing that? I must need a brain transplant. (laughs) Next time I have a documentary idea, just bang me on the head. (laughs) And Catherine, of course, is unrelentingly positive. (laughs) I guess that's what you need. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the thing I wanted to get into as well was the... In New Zealand, I remember the fury, like the excitement, like oh, Helen is doing this thing, and it was also like, oh, you know, it's time for a woman. Oh, she's she's a front runner. This is going to be a good thing for the UN. And of course, it didn't work out that way. But what was interesting in your docker, you found that guy in the bedding shop, and he was like odds on Helen winning, right? And I was really well. It wasn't just him; it was all his all his punters. Yeah, she was clearly front runner. So what? Why? Why was that the case? Simply because she's a woman, and they were like, "Oh, it's time for a change." Or what was? Well, I mean, the she's same. Capable. The, yeah, I mean, all there that that that, you know, their their punters got it wrong, along with everyone else. A lot of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. except for those people behind. Because those you see, doors. the thing about the UN and that particular thing, and this is how corporations work. It's how a lot of political things work. It, it's, it looks transparent, but it isn't. And, and, um, and it's going to be decided by five men in a quiet room. And sometimes there's a woman in that room, or there might even be two women in that room, but they're card-carrying members of that club, which is already defined by the patriarchy. So, you know, that's how the, that is how the world works, and that is what we have to change. And we can only change it together. Men and women, we have to actually have a gender analysis that makes us notice that the room's full of men and think about what we can do to change it. We have to look at how to do more than just call a woman Bruce in the gang, which is very friendly and kind and nice, and, and you know, it, it did work for me. Um, I was, I'll be everlastingly grateful to that. But we have to all focus more on equality. And, that, and, and, you know, if you've got privilege, you've got a special responsibility to do that. I, I don't know how Andrew feels about this, but I, I feel this. Like, when I, when I look at, like, for this particular podcast, I go, oh, we, I want to have some guests on. Who are, the, who are the people in film and TV that I know that are, that are women to, for this season? I'm like, oh, not that many. Jeez, I gotta, I gotta fix that. I gotta fix that. That's not good, you know. Yeah. And it's not like I've actively chosen to only be mates with dudes. <laughs> like it's, just, it's, <laughs> it's just that you know, it's that, or it's that sort of group think thing where, like, you walk into a room. I walk, I go to, I go to lots of film and TV conferences, and it's mainly guys. You know, it's mainly men in the room. You know, it's yeah. and, and it's not cool. <laughs> and and the, and the thing is that I'm the kid from early days. You know, before I I clicked. Before I read The Female Eunuch in 1970, I would be, you know, art school. You'd go to the pub. Everybody went to the pub. Mm -hmm. We weren't supposed to be going to the pub because we were all underage, but we went to the pub. (laughs) And there was the women's, women and escorts bar. And there was 
The public bar. Oh, the woman in escorts bar. <laughs> and all the interesting conversations were going on in the public bar. And, I mean, I, I got thrown out of a pub once for turning up to the woman in escorts bar without an escort. <laughs> Oh my God. So this That's is amazing. 1968, folks. That's amazing. So, so I was the one who would stand there with everybody's backs to me, and I would, the 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 attention would turn towards you as a young woman in the public bar mm-hmm. towards the end of the night, <laughs> when <laughs> when these marvelous young men who'd had a wonderful conversation in big loud voices suddenly noticed you were there because they were after a. Uh, a night on the town. I was, oh, there's a woman here. Oh, oh, <laughs> yeah. Hey, you want to fuck? <laughs> so that was the New Zealand vernacular that I came from, which kind of stood me in good stead, really, for the UN. You know, it stood mm. me in good stead for carrying on being part of the film industry. So I've, I've bashed my way into that conversation. And they all say I talk too much. And I do, and I'm proud of it. <laughs> but you, you really won't. When they do the analysis, the men are talking just as much, if not more. Well, that's, that's right. <laughs> so, you know, there's now studies done so that <laughs> yeah, when yeah. women talk 30% of the time, the men think they're talking too much. So, you know, you're, you're talking to someone who talks too much and, and proud of it, card-carrying um, chatterbox. I'm and, very glad for it. And, I, you know, I think it's our turn. I, I agree, agree. And so I'm with... I'm with Judge Ginsburg from the Supreme Court who was asked, you know, about a 50-50 gender parity on the, the US Supreme Court, and she said, oh, we want we want 100%. Yeah, yeah. To make up for the, all, all the other years. parts. Yeah, yeah. 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 So yeah. I, like, <laughs> okay, life doesn't start now. There's a, there's a history to all this. I mean, I've just been in the hallowed halls of one of the oldest male enclaves in the world at Cambridge University as a visiting scholar at Jesus College. And I loved it. <laughs> it was brilliant. I lived like a I lived like a nineteenth century young gentleman. I did not wash a cup. I did not make my bed. <laughs> I did not pick up a towel. I was fed. I was offered a fresh breakfast every morning. All I had to do was stagger out of bed and get myself there before 10 o'clock in the morning and I could get eggs Benedict cooked fresh for me at the college. You know, I mean, and it does wonders to your brain, that. It does. It is creative. Mm -hmm. If you want to know why we don't have uh, the background in uh, female artistry with a few marvellous exceptions, there's your reason. Women have spent their entire time Doing the housework, yeah, 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 and cleaning up, and you know that's that's not good for either gender. So, if there's anybody listening to this podcast who is male, who is thinking, what can I do to help put our globe onto a more equal footing between men and women, no matter what their politics are, do the housework. Seriously, do the housework. I will know when we have achieved women's liberation. I won't hear any woman I know say, oh, I'm very lucky with my husband. He does the housework. Because that assumes that it's women's work and he's being helpful. It's actually, why have one gender who doesn't think they should be cleaning up? Yeah. Uh, 
And I know this is changing, but it's taken a long time. I mean, it's 50 years since I read The Female Eunuch. Yeah, it's it's too slow, to be honest with you. I just wanted to, uh, before, it sounds like we're wrapping up this, actually, that was probably a good place, but there was something that I was I was curious about, this this particular film, was that you were you were in it. You were featured quite heavily in it, which is which is, which is is cool. Like, I was like, oh, that's interesting. I don't know whether, and I need to go back and watch some of your other dockers, but I don't think you necessarily feature yourselves in them that, as much as this one. Is this, a, am I correct in that? Or is yes. That a... In a way, I didn't have much choice with my year with Helen. I, I'd done it before. Sue Woodfield made me in a film I made uh, to the, uh, which was called The Time of Our Lives, and it was made for television. And it it follows um, a bunch of veterans going to the dedication of the London That's Memorial right. in Hyde Park. Mm. Wonderful memorial, by the way. It was worth a visit if you're in London. Anyway, I'd started off, I, I kind of did the commentary for that. And I am on the edge of frame sometimes because mm. I had two cameras. Yeah. So once you've got two cameras, it's very hard for your cameraman to avoid you. I also found, so when it came to my year with Helen, I was comfortable being second camera. But then I found that it's very hard to be avoided then. Uh, but I also found that once I was behind the camera, I became first camera. Right. Because... If they're getting in a car and I've just got my little camera, I don't hesitate. I'm bold. I'm in the car. Hesitate. You're, you're, the car's gone down the road and your crew and you are standing on the standing footpath <laughs> thinking, now what do we do? We're on a really expensive metre here and what the hell do we shoot? Because they've gone in the car. So I had to step forward and I had to tog up with a really good camera I used a Sony FS5, mm-hmm. brilliant little camera. Nice cameras, yeah. And my SF5 camera is intercut shot for shot in quite a few scenes with Canon 300. Mm. And thanks to the brilliant work that was done at Images and Sound, I don't think you can pick it. And I've seen it in some of the world's largest cinemas. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't think visually you can pick it. My main technical problem with um, my year with Helen was that Helen refused to wear a radio mic. Oh, right. Really? <laughs> Hate the bloody things. Well, so obviously, obviously, and actually radio mics are a bit problematic in a building like the UN, which is wired for sound. It's The ceilings are full of microphones anyway. Right. Um, <laughs> however... I realised that Helen wasn't wearing a radio mic because she was protecting the people talking to her who hadn't signed rights agreements with us and hadn't agreed to be in a documentary. And Helen's Helen's got a great sense of integrity. Mm. You know, really probably the person I know with the most integrity, Mm. almost to her detriment. She's amazing. So... (laughs) That meant that I had to have a very good shotgun mic on my little camera, and that meant my shot was, was relatively close. close. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, so I'm wide and close. Right. Um, and about fifty percent of the camera work in that documentary is, in fact, me. But I'm saved, saved, by brilliant shots from others who were proper cinematographers with <laughs> Canon 300s, who will get the yeah. nice shots. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, uh, but part of the reason I, I comment on that is because I love the fact that the UN is full of people in suits, and then every now and then there's Gaylene in her leather jacket and hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and you go, who's that? Who's that over there? Because you know we really didn't fit. Oh my goodness, we did not fit. Well, it's interesting because there's one point in the film where you are filming, I think, a BBC crew. I'm not entirely sure, and the camera guy's there, and the boom guy's there, and they're wearing suits. And I was like, that's not Gaylene's crew, is it? They're not, Gaylene's crew's not wearing suits, are they? Where's that? Oh, maybe we might have asked them to wear a suit one day. What were we for? I can't remember. There, no, I a, can't remember our guys wearing suits. No, no, it was, I think, I'm pretty sure it was a BBC doco was setting up, there was an interview setting up with Gaylene, and there was, there was, a, there was definitely a man in a suit holding a boot. Oh, that was a Russian crew. Oh, Russian crew. Okay, yeah, right, Russian right, right. crew. <laughs> see, we made friends. See, we arrived in the UN, and we're a documentary, and they're, they're not good, they don't have documentaries. Right. At the same time we were shooting, there was a Danish documentary crew shooting for Legatoft, and they were over the other side of the barrier because they were working out of the president of the, of the General Assembly's Assembly. office. And apart from hating them, because I would always see them where we wanted to be, <laughs> we made friends with them. And we would go off and have lunch because we were the two documentary crews in the entire UN that year. Mm -hmm. We would go and have breakfasts and lunches occasionally and they would complain about having to shoot so many boring meetings. And we would complain about not being able to get access to a single one. Of the boring meetings. (laughs) (laughs) But, But we were always media, so we... We had to be behind the barrier, mm-hmm. and we were called media. And the first day we filmed, I had a huge fight with the media minder we were assigned to because we went over to film for the UNDP a breakfast that Helen was having with Middle Eastern, a Middle Eastern crowd. And we were there filming... The setup, because I knew once that meeting started on real nitty gritty, we would get thrown out. So we set up tracks and we were filming, and this guy's going, They're just going to do a spree and then they're gone. You know, and <laughs> once he said something about a spray a for spray. the third time, mm. I went up to him and I said, We don't spray. I don't even know what we that are, means. except, well, it means you just go in and go bing bong, bing bong. Oh, I see. Right, right, right. Which is what news do. You've got cutaways. And yeah, then yeah, yeah. you get everybody smiling at the camera and then you're out of there. I said, we don't spray. We are a documentary crew. And do you want to be in it? And he goes, no. And I go, well, you are at the moment <laughs> because you are standing in front of our camera. And if you can see the camera, the camera can see you. You're talking very loudly. So you're all over our soundtrack. So... Up to you. (laughs) (laughs) And Catherine, who was so diplomatic, she was going, oh, my God, this is day one, and Gaylene decides to take on the entire Malu organisation that she'd spent days of her life getting getting access through Malu, Mm -hmm. the media... What is it? Malu Media Something Liaison Unit. Right, right. Media Accreditation Liaison Unit. And here's me picking a fight with their guy within, (laughs) you know, the first half hour of arrival. He kind of went into a sulk and disappeared. (laughs) 
which was a good app. It's good, yeah. That's what, that's what you want. That's what you want. <laughs> and and uh, then came over, oh, you're going to do a documentary. I bet I'll never see it. I'll we blah, blah, right? Because he didn't, he didn't believe that I was a documentary maker, you see. And well, and he not? kept going around the building going, is she real? Is she really making, is she really a filmmaker? Because yeah. I had my little camera. I looked like a, but the FS5 is I looked like fine somebody camera. they <laughs> so couldn't so think. Uh, you know, I wasn't a diplomat. I wasn't a. I wasn't part she's of the wearing media. She's a leather jacket. I mean, she's got a hat on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and she's got this tiny little camera that looks like a. It, it's clever because it looked like a home video setup. Right, 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 right. And of course, I had Catherine. So there was no man for them to talk to. <laughs> Where's the man? Story of my life. <laughs> but actually, you can get away with stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like we we felt the whole time we were shooting, we felt like we weren't getting away with anything. And then when we screened the film in New York, the media people who came to see it went, "God, you did well. Yeah. You know, you just kept turning up. You you know, you kept, you, you got so far in um, I, I to thought, anyone else. I thought you got really far in. I mean, apart from those horrible non-transparent meetings, I really thought you had really great access. Can you explain to me what? They they kept using that term. What was actually transparent? Because I didn't see it. I don't understand why they kept using that term. Well, it wasn't transparent. But, you know, they had this Al Jazeera got in there and did a, a worldwide debate. A debate, yeah. It was cool. You know, and Which hasn't tweets happened before. were happening and all of that. Nothing like that. Well, like there had been no film crew ever I see. Okay. on the floor of the UN like that. And Al Jazeera went in and did a whole thing. And so it looks like transparency. But I'll tell you what, I mean, that was a wonderful day for us because we got down in there too. Mm, yeah, yeah. And we were able to get shots we had never had been able to get because we weren't able to get into the General Assembly and film. Mm, mm, mm. Um, and we were with our tribe. And I mean, that was a wonderful day. But because Al Jazeera w- were the closest we had to our tribe. Mm. Um, but basically, when they had that debate... The whole process had already gone in to the General Assembly. Mm-hmm. A straw poll was happening the next week. Right. It was never going to be influential around. It was a. It was a what show. my father said about World War Two. It was a big have. A big have. A have. <laughs> a have is an old phrase that the that the war veterans used to say. You know, I'll have it, and you can suck it. <laughs> it's a have, it's a, a big have. It's a, it's a cheat. Right. Um, I, I, I guess I keep saying I should wrap up because we've been talking so long. It's been really great talking to you about this. Andrew, do you have any other points about the film that you were interested in? No, I think we've, we've covered most of the things like the, the amount of access and sort of overall coverage of the UN, uh, which is sort of really great. It's not just Helen, it's the tribes. It goes wider <laughs> than just her. Yeah, it's, it's all the tribes. I thought it's it's sort of almost prescient in that it's you were filming 2016 because, yeah, there was the big, insane American election happening at the same time. So why haven't we been able to sell this film to a single network internationally outside Australia and New Zealand? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that because I, I would go, oh, no. a film about the UN election process. Oh, interesting. But obviously not for some people. I they go, UN, nah. Yeah, UN, nah. Did you get it? Nah. Nah. 
Yeah. I think that's I think that's a big thing for America, right? Oh, you didn't that, win? <laughs> well, it's not for America. You know, yeah. it's not for America. There is an um, American audience clambering to see this film, which is why our event screenings have been going so well. Yes, crazy. It is actually the distribution industry. Yes. Okay. The last thing that I was curious about was the editor. So, so the editor, so Paul, Paul Satorius cut it. So, you know, when you, obviously when you're filmmaking, you're, you're thinking of the narrative, but it seems like a lot is happening. Like Helen is just doing lots of things, you know. So was that difficult, like finding the through point? Paul, uh, well, Julie Alp, she took all the, we'd come back from New York, you know, jet-lagged and with me incredibly grumpy. And then, well, not grumpy so much, as sort of tired and emotional, probably. And Julie would take all that. She would digitise it. And then she and I would sit and we'd do some selects. And then that would help me shape what we were going to shoot next. And then we'd, Catherine and I'd get cracking, we'd line up some things, and then go and do it again. So that's what we did all year. Well, Paul came on board, so the selects were much shorter than watching everything. Mm. Paul sat in the cutting room and he watched every frame. Wow. And he did that. That took him two months. (laughs) He arrives in the morning at 8, he leaves at 6, he watches all day. Obviously, he's fast-forwarding some of the time, and he's making selects, and we're working here at home, so I'm flitting in and out, and we're having a conversation about what he's saying because I've already seen it. Mm-hmm. And we're making this. So we ended up with a after two months, we had five hours. Wow. And we made the film out of the five hours. Right, right, right. Yeah. So by the time we had the five hours uh, compile, we had a pretty good idea of what the structure was and where we could efficiently be looking. Because you've got to make your film out of the best bits. Mm. No matter what your idea is, Mm. you've got to try and realise your themes clearly while only using the best bits. You don't want all your best bits on the floor and footage you've had to bend all around the place to tell a story because you've decided that's your story. See, I don't really think in story terms for documentaries. I think it's really good to know what your themes are and what your purpose is and and who your audience, where your audience lies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I I hear filmmakers say all the time, no, but that's not the story I want to tell. Well, you can be bloody sure it's the story I want to tell. I want to tell an audience something that I think they will find interesting and something that I think they will find enlightening. That's the story I want to tell, which isn't a story. It's actually themes. Yeah. And yes, you get narratives that come in on it. You get characters to help you do that. But I'm I'm not, you know, I know there's a lot talked about re-story, but if you actually start analysing what story is, it's all about themes Mm. and communicating to the reader that, the listener, the watcher. That's really interesting because I really feel that that's a big conflict I see a lot in uh, fandom, in modern day fandom, like things like Star Wars and what have you, where people really get hooked up on story. And I'm and I, the older I get, I'm like, what did it make me feel? 
Like, what are the thematics and how does it make me feel? And that's more important, you know, to me. Oh, well, you know, <laughs> I mean, Aldous Huxley talked about the feelies in Brave New World. Right, right. Yeah. And, 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 and Helen um, sort of encapsulated when she was all like, oh, well, none of this really surprises me. You know, she's very direct. And I was like... Yeah, Helen like, goes, look, everything <laughs> isn't about how you feel. You know, use your brain. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I think that's especially important for an artist. We... We have to have huge intuition and instinct in our work. We have to have giant focus. But we have to use our intellect mm -hmm. and we have to be tough. I mean, a self-depreciation, a self-depreciating artist, Rajiv, is ingenuous because no artist that I know who has succeeded with their art is self-depreciating. No, <laughs> yeah. You know, you you have to have a sense of entitlement, and you have to and you have to certainly never rest on your laurels and think you you're you you're on top of it. Yeah, we'll get there. It's fine. <laughs> so I'm sitting around here complaining to people who remember me during war stories, and I'm going, oh, I don't know. You know, it's really hard. It's oh. And they go, oh, yeah, that's all right. That's what you said when you were doing war stories. Like, did I? I go, yes, all the time. <laughs> so it's never going to be easy. It never was easy and it never will be. <laughs> but if you've got girls in your gang, include them. And if you're a girl who hasn't got a gang, get one, <laughs> male or female, but especially female. Get a gang. Get a gang. Get a gang. That sounds great. And he'll do the housework and you'll have two hours spare a day. <laughs> That's great, Gaylene. Hey, um, this has been really enlightening. I really have appreciated talking to you again. It's really good to be to be in the room with you again. I really appreciate that. Um, so is there something that you would like the listeners to know about your, in your future? Is there stuff that you've got coming up? Yeah, we've got the opening of Are We There Yet? which is the Suffrage 125 um, exhibition opening at the Auckland Museum. Mm -hmm. um, yes, New Zealand women were the first in the world to achieve the vote. New Zealand, yes, was the first country to get universal suffrage. This is, this is, we know far more about Edmund Hillary climbing Mount Everest than we know about our huge progressive mm -hmm. event in 1893. So I've made a short film in that exhibition. Um, it has Lucy Lawless, Chelsea Preston Crayford, Miranda Harcourt and Jean Sargent embodying the words of several suffragists who voted in 1893, who were recorded at various times as very old ladies mm. by Radio New Zealand in the 1940s, 1950s. Excellent. And I've cut a little seven-minute film where uh, they talk about that. That's fantastic. What a great what a great lineup of performance. Yeah. <laughs> and they go, Oh, it was exciting. <laughs> oh, it was exciting. Old Seddon didn't want it, you know. <laughs> oh no. And when he when he uh, congratulated the women on w winning the franchise, one of them said, You're nothing but a hypocrite. And he said <laughs> Oh no, I'm a politician. <laughs> I like to be on the side that's winning. <laughs> it's a very good oral history. What a brilliant thing that is. That's and fantastic. that's courtesy of Natonga Sound and Vision. 
Oh, great. That's really great. Thanks. Yeah, well, um, that's in Auckland for any of our listeners. But will that will that get a... Will it'll I be, be able to see that film at some it'll point? It'll be on a... You go to the exhibition and it's on a loop and it screens every 10 minutes. It screens every 10 minutes. For the next three months. For the, and then will it be... Will that... Could that film be available outside of Auckland? Yeah, we'll, we'll uh, shove it up on YouTube, I suppose. Great. Oh, it's, uh, it's not mine to promote. You know, I mean, it belongs to the to the Auckland Museum, but, um, well, yeah, we'll... you never know. I might put it in some um, short film. I've, I've finally made a short film, Rishi. <laughs> That's good. Okay. Well, you could be, you could be one of New Zealand's best. I'm going backwards. <laughs> That's the way to go. All right. Um, so, that, so that was this. That's our final episode. Um, um, we'll be back, uh, I guess, with season five, maybe next year. Well, me and Andrew will have to talk about that. But in the meantime, you can find me on the Twitter at Rajiv Film R A J E E V F I L M. I'm also there on the letterbox. You can find this podcast wherever you listen to good podcasts. Please rate and review. Andrew, have you got anything to say? Before we go. Uh, no, just uh, thank you for being on the show, Gaylene. It has been. An absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Gary. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> Goodbye, good luck, and aroha nui. Bye.